what got you started with real estate? And then how did you get to the point to make that leap to go full time? I I was working at a CPA firm doing tax and audit. And I was actually lucky enough to work um, at a CPA firm where I was auditing these larger multifamily deals because, and they were, um, they were getting government subsidy for retirement communities or, you know, low income communities across the country, Um, nicer areas and things like that. Uh, At the same time, uh, you know, they had to have audit government audits because they were getting that subsidy. And so we would go through and I learned the inner workings of all this. And I'm sitting on the other side of the table uh, with uh, the CEO and the owners of this company. And their owners are talking to the CEO going, yeah, go ahead and buy that 10, $20 million building. No problem. You know, I trust your, your judgment on this. And I'm going, I'm sitting on the wrong side of the table. Like we're, we're, this is stupid money, you know, like that's amazing. And he's buying these things with cash initially, you know, and then refinancing afterwards and things like that. And, you know, I'm going, okay, this is, I got to focus on learning what they know, you know? And, and also I couldn't, justify helping the government steal any more people's money on the tax side, you know, so I had to take a step back and be like, no, I don't think so. I'll I'll be on the good guy's side for a while, you know, so, but, um, and, you know, I started learning, okay, how, what, what things do I, what can I do? What, what new activities can I learn in real estate? And I took some classes at this nouveau riche course and spent 16 grand on the classes and all that stuff. And I got my first deal under contract and I just said, I'm done. I'm going to hopefully make 30 grand on this flip. And, uh, I'm, I got to do three of those a year to have the same salary right now. So that's all I'm doing. Forget it. You know? And of course I ended up making 20 and splitting it with two other people, of course, and, you know, continuing and continuing. And then, uh, got an office at the world trade center in long beach on like the 23rd floor, which was amazing total wrong move, like massive overhead immediately. Cause I thought I was dope. And then I wasn't dope. It was just the market that was, that was dope. And you realize, Oh, wow, I'm an idiot. And you have those moments that you're talking about where you're going, I don't know, shit, I need to get a job, you know, like, where, and I'm like, I need to make like 300 grand a year. I'm not going to be happy. Like, let me go somewhere and find that job, you know? And mm-hmm. you know, you realize, okay, let me hunker down, cut overhead, try to do things right and focus on, you know, cash flow. We started doing joint ventures with acquisition fees and things like that to keep the doors on where we do two, three deals a month and make like a $5,000 acquisition fee and rehab management fee and keep that door going as we did the flips, you know, along the way. And it took time to do that and build that up. But now then I started using debt because I didn't need to do joint ventures anymore and uh, that type of stuff because it made it easier and easier. Now I have a system going where I'm not having to be involved consistently in the, in the flip system other than final analysis and things like that for my underwriters, you know? Um, Mm. And when I started bringing capital to the table to flippers all over the country, deals just get thrown to me left and right where I cannot review that many deals. It's like a lot of people have problem with deal flow in this market. I don't because I'm bringing resources to them and I'll joint venture with them. If they don't have the money, you know, how many wholesalers are out there that, have tons of deal flow, but no capital. So they just can't go take these down and they're giving them away for five grand when they could have made 15 or on their half of the flip, you know, on these things. So I started doing that strategy and then parlaying it into buy and holds. Um, And then I started looking at, wow, I can make an extra grand a month on this, on this via short-term rental strategy versus, you know, the current cash flow of a hundred bucks or 200 bucks a month in the Midwest. What's up, everybody? My name is Mike Shogren here with my co-host, Emmanuel Pani. We're part of a group of specialized real estate investors you've probably never heard of. We didn't start with deep pockets or wealthy families, and we don't rely on 401ks, mutual funds, or traditional real estate investing. In fact, many of us don't even own the properties that fund our freedom. If you ask the money experts out there, they'd say what we do is impossible, yet it's happening every single day. It's happening through a new niche called short-term rentals. We are Short-Term Rental Nation, and these are our secrets. What's going on, STR Nation? Welcome back to another episode of the Short-Term Rental Secrets Podcast. I am your host, Mike Shogren, here with my main man and brother from another mother, Mr. Emmanuel Pani. What is going on, E? My brother, life is a blessing. Just went to see a couple properties this morning. The real estate market is still insane. People still want way too much money for things that don't don't work like that anymore. Um, But at the same time, like, you think you have that like negotiating power and then you call the next day and they're like, yeah, we have 
six offers. I'm like, how the fuck do you have six offers? You're like at least 20 grand overpriced. They're like, you want to submit one? I'm like, no, like it just doesn't make sense. Like my client also for people buying places, it doesn't make like, you'll never get his money out. We don't know where the economy is going. We don't know what's going on. Well, best and final submitted by six. I'm like, well, perfect. Thank you very much. Anyways, but life is good, man. This is my favorite time of the year as, as I, as I kind of keep saying. So I am, nice. I am blessed to live in South Florida now. Yeah. And it's just a quick lesson before we get into today's episode is, is patience is, is a, a virtue as they say. Right. So especially with real estate, like you make your money when you buy it. So if you buy it right, you know, you, especially right now, you might have to go through a lot of deals and just be willing to put in the work to keep going and farming out and seeing if you can find whether a distressed seller or some type of motivated seller. Um, but if you're buying retail and you're looking for some type of, you know, rentable investment property, it's going to be tough um, and you might be overpaying. So just stay patient, keep going out there, putting, putting your leads out there, putting your feelers out there and um, the deals will come your way eventually. So just keep your head in the game. Um, but today I want to get right into it because we've got a very special guest and I want to pull up his bio because it is uh, very impressive. Uh, he's done pretty much every niche in real estate. Uh, I think the only, I don't even know if I saw wholesaling, but he's probably done that. And if he hasn't, he's done pretty much everything else in real estate. Um, so we're really excited to have him on. Uh, today we have Matthew Owens. He's a CPA and owner of OCG Properties. He's got a bachelor's degree in economics with an emphasis in accounting from UC Santa Barbara. Uh, he's bought, renovated, and sold over 700 single-family properties. He's currently <laughs> buying five single-family rentals a month. He acquires and operates value-add multifamily properties. He's a private lender with over $10 million lent in multiple markets across the U.S. He's raised over $75 million in private investor capital. He currently owns over 103 units in Memphis, Atlanta, and St. Louis. Uh, he's been in property management for over 10 years. He's done general investments, syndicated investments, performing and non-performing notes, single family, multifamily, flipping, private lending, short-term rentals. I mean, he's literally done it all. So I am very excited to welcome our guest, Matthew Owens. Welcome to the show. Thanks, man. That's what you get for being a deal junkie, you know? So you see, you see a penny and you go for it. So, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm really it. concerned that we won't have enough things to kind of talk about today. It's, it's, a, big <laughs> it's a big concern of mine. It doesn't seem like you have done much. So, um, but, anyways, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll do our best. You learn, you learn every way to lose money on a house after flipping as many houses as I have. And, uh, and it, it's probably actually over a thousand right now. I just stopped counting. I just, after a while you're like, okay, whatever. I don't care anymore. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been a fun road. I quit my CPA firm job in 2006. So I was a real estate genius for about a year and a half before I lost my front teeth and got knocked out, you know, of course, you know, uh, very similar to some of the things you see now, except, you know, back then it was a lot more uh, mortgage centric and real estate centric than it is currently. But, you know, kind of what you guys were saying a little bit earlier about, you know, things that topping out at the market and stuff, there's definitely danger signals and it all has to do with unemployment and things like that in these markets. And, you know, not knowing where the end really is when you see headlines like Yelp saying 60% of their business is not coming back, you know? So it's really interesting what happens, but yeah, we do, you know, five flips a month. We have actually right now over 15 million lint out uh, to different flippers. We have about 36 flips happening right now uh, that are in process. We do joint joint ventures and things like that with investors in multiple markets. And then, you know, we jumped into the short-term rental space because frankly, looking at the cash flow, and um, we started out doing short-term rentals, mostly in Southern California, close to Disneyland until the city just shut it down and shut down saying that they're interpreting the code in a certain way. So, you know, number one uh, thing to be careful about is, you know, city regulations and things like that so that you don't run into issues there. But we had about three of them to get shut down in Southern California. They were making me easy 50 to $70,000 a year, given where they were at. It was amazing. And, you know, it, we shifted. That's what was, you know, that's what you have to do as a real estate investor. You stick and move, right? So 
you know, we went through and we have an apartment building out in uh, Little Rock that uh, is brand new that we just finished and they're all studios. We're like, great, we'll take the two bedroom units out here and shift them out there. And, you know, hopefully it works. If it doesn't, then it doesn't work, you know, <laughs> but you do your homework on it and, and, you know, run your numbers and your math and hopefully you're right, <laughs> you know? So, um, but it, that only comes with experience in a specific sub market and things like that. But yeah, it's, it's been a fun ride. I'll have to say, you know, uh, you, you learn a lot right in the beginning, but losing everything in the beginning is probably the best thing that ever happened to me because, you realize you learn one how to pick yourself back up after getting knocked out, which is probably 90% of success in the first place is getting back up after you make your mistakes, which will continue to happen. And, and then, you know, you also learn how to raise private capital that way because you don't can't rely on banks initially for that, you know? So now, you know, credit scores back up to 800 and things like that, but you learn some fun lessons along the way. We took out 200 grand on our credit cards to make sure our investors got paid back and then tried to float and went down with the ship and lost it all, you know? So, um, but my investors didn't lose anything. And then they started reinvesting with me afterwards because they saw what I did. They didn't really know what happened in the market until six months later when it's all coming out. Uh, but at the same time, you know, liquidity stopped completely right in the middle of about 30 flips that we were doing uh, really quickly. And so we got, <laughs> you talk about knocked out, <laughs> you know, we went to like six different brokers all telling them, telling us they can get them financed and none of them could actually do it. They just didn't know, you know, so it's, it's a lot of fun along the way, but Hey, you make, it makes you super strong by taking those hits. And now when I take a hit, my immediate mindset is how do I make it back? What is going to change in my thinking to find a way to make this back and, 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 you know, find, you know, do that. I, I took like a $50,000 hit uh, on this, uh, this house because it had a major, you know, construction defect that we didn't see uh, in the foundation. And, um, and when that happened, I'm going, you know, you get down on yourself. You're like, dang, that's 50 grand. That, that hurts, you know? And, um, and then, the next day, because I was focused on how, what strategies do I do to make that money back? I basically got a, an apartment building under contract um, for a, a listing that we were selling to our another, another real estate investor where we did an assignment and made 70 grand in like a week. And, uh, and I was like that, you know, when that happens, all of a sudden your mindset shifts again into holy crap, dude, like everything can be mindset. Now, don't get me wrong, maybe with some luck or something too, potentially, but that luck doesn't come to you unless your mind is open to it and looking for the solutions to your problems. And your success as a real estate investor is going to significantly depend on your ability to do that stick and move and to say, this isn't working shift. How do I go and solve a problem that exists? You know, cause it's all about problems, you know, yeah. so, but that's amazing. Sorry, I didn't mean to rat, dude. No, it was, it was, I mean, like, there was so much quality in kind of what you were talking about um, just now. And I think for me, the best part is, you know, when I look at you, I'm like, I see a lot of things that like I'm working towards, right? And it's, and it's funny that no matter the years as real estate investors, and I think as entrepreneurs in general, we still have those days that goes from like, I am God to I am a dog like I I don't like why like who who put me in charge of this like I shouldn't be in charge of this like I don't know what I'm doing but then but then it's it's just like when you get in your first fight you know what I mean like getting punched in the face the first time you're mm -hmm. kind of shocked the more you get punched in the face you kind of just learn to like shake it off real quick and then your eyes don't really close anymore right and then it's that adjusting on your feet that makes all the difference, you know? And then the right. universe, I mean, in my personal thoughts, the universe rewards it. Then you can call it luck. You can call it whatever you want. I choose to call it the universe kind of taking care of me. Um, and that's what so, my beliefs are. And it, it works in my favor, you know? It's the law of attraction right there. You know, you're, yeah. you're focused on what do you want to bring into your life? And the more that is successful for you, the more it becomes a more ingrained belief over time. And it just takes time because, you know, I, I showed my mom the, this movie of the law of attraction before, and she sees this little kid wishing for a bike and wishing for a bike. And then you finally just a bike appears. And she, her mindset was, 
a bike just isn't going to appear like that. I'm like, that's not the point, mom. <laughs> so you know, the, the point is you constantly think about something and it will become an obsession. And when it becomes an obsession, then you focus on it and you find those baby steps to continually move it forward. Everybody wants it right now. You know, like I want this success immediately, but mm -hmm. it's a matter of that, you know, journey to get there and slowly taking those baby steps uh, and your ability to push through when things get tough, because, you know, like you said, your emotions go high and low and it's lonely on entrepreneur mountain when most of your friends and people that, you know, don't necessarily have that same mindset, or they may not necessarily understand what you're going through um, fully uh, because they don't see the stress that it causes and the highs and lows. And then once you step back and get out of your own head, you realize that a lot of your emotional reaction to that is just that, an emotional reaction that you can change and adjust to. You just have to have the power to do it, right? Mentally. And that takes that takes grit and toughness to get through that, you know? So <laughs> I love that. And one thing I want to go back to, cause this is ironically near and dear to my heart. I was a CPA before I got nice. into this full time. And so take us back to how you, what got you started with real estate and then how did you get to the point to make that leap? To go so full time. I, I was working at a CPA firm doing tax and audit, and I was actually lucky enough to work um, at a CPA firm where I was auditing these larger multifamily deals because, and they were um, they were do, getting government subsidy for retirement communities or you know low income communities across the country, um, nicer areas and things like that. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know they had to have audit government audits because they were getting that subsidy. And so we would go through, and I learned the inner workings of all this. And I'm sitting on the other side of the table uh, with uh, the CEO and the owners of this company, and the, their the owners are talking to the CEO, going. Yeah, go ahead and buy that $10, $20 million building. No problem. You know, I trust your, your judgment on this. And I'm going, I'm sitting on the wrong side of the table. Like, we're, we're, this is stupid money, you know, like, that's amazing. And he's buying these things with cash initially, you know, and then refinancing afterwards and things like that. And, you know, I'm going, okay, this is, I got to focus on learning what they know, you know, and, and also I couldn't justify helping the government steal any more people's money on the tax side, you know, so I had to take a step back and be like, no, I don't think so. I'll, I'll be on the good guy's side for a while, you know? So, but, um, and, you know, I started learning, okay, how, what, what things do I, what can I do? What, what new activities can I learn in real estate? And I took some classes in at this Nouveau course and spent 16 grand on the classes and all that stuff. And I got my first deal under contract and I just said, I'm done. I'm going to hopefully make 30 grand on this flip. And uh, I'm, I got to do three of those a year to have the same salary right now. So that's all I'm doing. Forget it. You know? And of course I ended up making 20 and splitting it with two other people, of course, and, you know, continuing and continuing. And then uh, got an office at the world trade center in long beach on like the 23rd floor, which was amazing total wrong move, like massive overhead immediately. Cause I thought I was dope. And then I wasn't dope. It was just the market that was, that was dope. And you realize, Oh, wow, I'm an idiot. And you have those moments that you're talking about where you're going, I don't know, shit, I need to get a job, you know, <laughs> like, and I'm like, I need to make like 300 grand a year. I'm not going to be happy. Like, let me go somewhere and find that job, you know? And mm -hmm. you know, you realize, okay, let me hunker down, cut overhead, try to do things right and focus on, you know, cash flow. We started doing joint ventures with acquisition fees and things like that to keep the doors on where we do two, three deals a month and make like a $5,000 acquisition fee and rehab management fee and keep that door going as we did the flips, you know, along the way. And it took time to do that and build that up. But now then I started using debt because I didn't need to do joint ventures anymore and uh, that type of stuff because it made it easier and easier. Now I have a system going where I'm not having to be involved consistently in the, in the flip system other than final analysis and things like that for my underwriters, you know? Um, mm. And when I started bringing capital to the table to flippers all over the country, deals just get thrown to me left and right where I cannot review that many deals. It's like a lot of people have problem with deal flow in this market. I don't because I'm bringing resources to them and I'll joint venture with them if they don't have the money. You know how many wholesalers are out there that have tons of deal flow, but no capital. So they just can't go take these down and they're giving them away for five grand when they could have made 15 or on their half of the flip, you know, on these things. So I started doing that strategy and then parlaying it into buy and holds. Um, and then I started looking at, wow, 
I can make an extra grand a month on this on this via short term rental strategy versus you know the current cash flow of a hundred bucks or two hundred bucks a month in the Midwest. Uh, the biggest challenge is good management that knows what the hell they're doing. They can operate these things efficiently with the right tech, with the right communication and all that stuff, because it's a rarity. And if you try to duplicate that stuff, it's a lot of training and you're running hotels unless you have a good system in place to manage that aspect. But you can also get 10 of them and potentially retire off of it too, you know? So, which is an amazing strategy to utilize, especially if you're subleasing and things like that those assets and not even having to buy them in this kind of a market, it probably makes a lot of sense to not buy them because of the tenant landlord laws in your favor and things like that, that are happening down the pike. But um, you also can get three and a half percent investment property financing too, which is pretty nice, you know, as well. So I, I think it depends on where you're buying, you know, what kind of LTV you're in it for to counterbalance the downside of the market, you know? Mm. Dude, so. you you spit like there is so much fire in like so little like just so little time. Um, like right. like I'm like okay, I'm gonna ask him about that, and then like you say something else, I'm like shit, I need to ask him about that. And now I don't remember any of it because it was just all so overwhelming. Um, but to me, what it's really interesting about your mindset is the way that you seem to constantly look at at things that have cost you money as really just a learning opportunity. And mm -hmm. I think that's where the real estate market gets very difficult is that a lot of people don't remember that if you go to college and take a course, it'll cost you four, five, six grand. And then real estate, if you do a flip and you lose some money, the learning lessons that come in it. And then the important thing of what you're saying earlier, you pivot, you adjust and you create systems, mm -hmm. right? So what does, what do your system look like now for your Airbnb business? So we, we shut down our ones in California. So we have some in Little Rock. Uh, we decided to focus on one building instead. And, you know, right now on the short-term rental side, to me, it's a matter of proper communication. So having, you know, template information uh, on there when you're dealing with, you know, the operational aspect and making sure that you have second checks and balances on, you know, the cleaning crews and things like that before each stay, making sure that you have the right customer service piece in place, which will then parlay into the right business systems as well, right? And being able to set up your system where, you know, each unit has, you know, you can track that accordingly in inside Airbnb or inside VRBO and inside the numerous other platforms you can, you know, post on. I really don't like just putting it on Airbnb only because one, I don't like their policies. You saw what they did to people in this last, uh, you know, pandemic where they basically said, hey, owners, you're screwed. You're going to basically take the hits for all of the people that want to cancel for COVID, whether it's within your restricted period or not, you know, whether you have a, you know, a refund policy that, you know, is strict or not, and, you know, made people take the hit for that and then still kept their profits. So I diversify into multiple platforms as well. Um, and then try to market those, you know, on, on, uh, uh, on, on multiple sites, as well as through, you know, different uh, social media platforms and things like that to get your own lead base, you know, so to start, I have everything where the furniture, the pictures, all the initial marketing materials, all the detail of all the amenities, like, you know, do you have kids stuff? Do you have office stuff set up? Do you have um, the right amenities and all the different appliances? Do you have, you know, a rice cooker and a blender and, you know, uh, an extra roll away, you know, mattress, all the little things that add to value for that occupant. And depending on who your customer is, if you're going for the business customer or the family customer and things like that, because you're kind of competing with hotels in these ways, um, uh, but with a kitchen and different amenities uh, in, in some of these areas. So um, ours is more in a business district. So we want to make sure that we have, you know, uh, a printer with some paper left in there and, and ink and things like that. If there's, if that's there, we want to make sure that we have a, a steamer, you know, all the little things to make that guest super happy. And then, you know, auto entry, video doorbells, 
all of that kind of stuff to basically make it so that you have eyes and ears everywhere on this property. And, you know, we have security cameras inside and out, uh, not inside the unit, but inside the hallways and, <laughs> and, in, and on the outside of the property. So we know who's coming and going. Are they throwing a party? You know what's happening? Our units are 500 square foot units. So one bedroom units. So um, we're not really going to have too many parties. You know, we're not too worried about that aspect of things. Um, but we did them super nice and then took professional pictures with the right lighting, the right uh, feel so that it looks like a professional environment for people to come in and stay at, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then you have to assume and run your numbers and say, okay, well, let me do my comps just like you would comping a, a house on a multiple, you know, an, on the MLS or using comps there or comping a rental property for rents. You're going to comp your, your comparables via short-term rentals as well from the different platforms. And you have to understand how to navigate some of those things. There's software out there that you can develop, but are in utilize, but that's, you know, data that can be skewed. You really want to be looking at what is your true competition right now? And then months from now, what's your true competition right now? And then, you know, two weeks, three weeks, a month out, three months out, what is, what is the average rental rate going for and how, how, how fast do you fill those rentals as well during that process so that um, you know how long it takes you to, to fill a unit and how much lead time you usually need. So all of this stuff goes into the math to be able to tell you, is this thing profitable at all in the first place, minus the fees, minus, you know, cleaning, minus supply costs and things like that. A lot of people don't add these little things in there that might cost money. What about uh, furniture rentals or, you know, furniture financing and things like that that could occur, including your rent, if you're subleasing or your mortgage payment, your taxes and insurance, and, you know, of course, property management. You know, I've seen short-term rentals all across the board from 10 to 20% management. And it's usually a lot more because you're dealing with a lot more work with the turnover piece that goes into that is unless they have other staff that are responsible to go out there each time and do that walkthrough, or you have a very good cleaning crew that's proven and proven and proven. So you don't have to do the walkthrough anymore and only do spot checks every once in a while, but it's a matter of that process. And then having proper segregation of duties to have um, just like we know in accounting, right? Um, the proper segregation of duties for companies so that people don't steal from you. Uh, you know, people are held accountable and they're checking and balancing with a checklist of what to go through. And you want to look at this and say, what reporting do I want to get from my team for their job? If their job is to go through and do snapshots of the property, take pictures and video of the property each time and make sure the maid is doing their job, what things are they checking that the maid did every time that they can check that off and what software can make it, uh, auto make it so that you can automate it, which there's software out there that you can utilize to, to automate a lot of the made software, made, made process and spot checking process, including getting all of your documentation for damages and things like that. That's probably one of the bigger things that you have to deal with is damages. Someone coming in and smoking in your unit, or, you know, we had somebody, it looked like they set up a video camera in the unit for some reason, because there was hole marks in the wood flooring that we had to fill and things like that. There's, I had a MMA fighter try to beat me up one time because the ground, the base molding was, uh, was, uh, was dirty around the, around the trash can area. And I was like, I'm sorry, our maid missed that. You want us to go and do that? And he's like, I just want a refund right now. And the guy was like a six, four, like Hispanic dude that was just huge. And I'm sitting there going, I don't want any part of this guy right now, but I'm just going to keep being nice. And he's like, I want a refund. I'm going, okay, go to Airbnb and follow the process they ask for you. And he takes his front teeth out and squares up on me. I'm like, bro, like, I'm not trying to go there right now. Like at the end of the day, I turned the whole thing around and the dude gave me a hug and was like, I'm sorry. I just get amped up sometimes and gave me a five-star review. And I'm like, after he gave me the five-star review, I was like, yeah, two-star review. You try to beat me up, dude. You're crazy as shit. You know? So I was like, you know, but, but like, yeah, I mean, you get a, you get a three-star review sometimes because your trash cans at the street are full on a, on a single family home, you know, or something. You're like, seriously people like the, you deal with crazy ass people sometimes but yeah anyway so that's my that's my rant on the processes 
for yeah. you know the short-term rental piece of this to keep it going and then monitoring your your production saying month by month what's my occupancy rate how can i improve it what's my expenses how can i improve it this is business owner stuff that most people don't understand i got people that are buying three and four short-term rentals and they go buy another one too and they're telling me hey you want to invest in this with me and i'm going you know can you show me the performance of your previous deals that you're doing and what your cost was on those to set up what your income and expenses were on those and 99% of the time they can't. And that's the key to being successful or not, because you don't know if you really are successful without making sure you break down the numbers and knowing, Hey, maybe in the first couple of months I'm slow, but my goal is to get to X occupancy by this period of time. Make sense. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Cause we, we recommend that all the time, right? So in our um, main suggestions to people that are getting started in this business, one of it is what you, you just brought up, which is it's a business, right? Even if it's just for you and your family to have a house, a cabin in the mountains, run it like a business. Right. And even if, if don't use the excuse, because if you're feeling like me now that you're like, well, fuck, my kid's a CPA, he's a CPA, they're just CPA people doing systems, they're great at it, I'm not that. That's my story too, right? But the reality is that like, it just takes a little practice and there's so much software out there now that you're really like just making excuses if you don't at least make an effort to systematize it and just create some key key data that you look at and you track all the time um so what do you guys see what's your vision now since you do so many things right like i don't think you're gonna necessarily do a 180 and now just do Airbnbs, right? But where do you see your guys' goals in the sense of like adding units to that? So, so my, my thought pattern right now is look, my, one of my biggest mistakes, I look back, you know, like I said, I flipped, you know, a ton of houses and it's basically selling all those houses because at this point I'd be completely retired if I wanted to, I got some good systems in place that I could, you know, potentially walk away from by hiring, you know, one person and, and replacing myself from some of the operational aspect of it. Um, at the same time, uh, my goal is cash flow. So right now, I'm focused on do I buy buying and holding long-term rental properties normal and then looking at every one of them and saying, does this make sense from a short-term rental standpoint to implement the strategy in this area um, uh, as well as an additional strategy each time I buy and, and hold an asset? And how much additional cost does that cost? Can I finance those costs as well uh, to make it so that it's a higher return on investment? Um, and um, and can I, you know, the, the furniture and things like that. And what kind of tax mitigation strategies can I implement to offset some of my flipping and interest income and things like that along the way too. So it's kind of looking at it as a whole picture and saying, great, I got the flipping happening here. I got the lending happening over here. I got my buy and hold strategy, which incorporates the short-term rental strategy into it. Um, and how can I get those finance? How can I take a lot of my buy and hold assets and offset the income on the other side? And that's what's really cool now with some of the cost seg strategies that you can put in place and breaking apart the property into a bunch of little pieces on purchase. You can write off like 25% of your building purchase in year one with some of the bonus depreciation strategies and things like that, which can be like a third to half of your down payment, you know, in a lot of these cases. So especially if you're doing a Burr method refinance or something like that, I think it's important to get some built-in equity and invest in markets that are less volatile with economic, you know, fluctuation, because I do think we're going to have some economic volatility coming up. I think we'll probably have some deflation coupled by long-term inflation. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's just because I think both parties are going to continue to print money and print money into oblivion now. Um, and so what do we do to take advantage of that? We get cheap fixed debt that's on 30 year fixed, you know, Fannie Freddie's at three and a half percent right now. We got commercial paper now on single family homes that's 30 year fixed at around, you know, five and a half to six percent, but it's commercial and it's 30 year fixed. Normally commercial is like, you know, five to seven years and then they have a balloon 
balloon payment, which you have a lot of interest rate risk for. So you look at all these strategies and say, how do I reduce my risk? How do I reduce my taxes? How do I increase my cash flow? And a lot of those ways is, you know, short-term rentals. We just had a uh, new unit come up uh, in Memphis that I had a long-term rental on that happens to be on a lake. Right. And, um, and I, I know I could rent that via short-term rental. I'm looking at 1495 a month in rents on a long-term rental. And I could probably make an extra thousand dollars a month on that. I'm still right now uh, testing a property manager on that for in that market in particular on another unit. So I'm going to wait one more year on that strategy uh, to implement that as soon as I prove out my team member and know what, what they, that they know what they're doing, because I got to show performance on one asset before I go give a property manager in another market, uh, another shot at another one. That's one of the biggest mistakes you can make is relying really heavily on a specific team member uh, and then having them not perform. And then mm -hmm. also making sure that if they're not performing, that you know exactly what performance looks like to you. What is their expectation? And can you set that with those team members? Because all of your investments don't matter if you don't have, you know, it doesn't matter how good the numbers are if, uh, if your teams are not performing. You know, rehab could go over, the property manager could be absolutely horrible. I went through five property managers in the beginning when, just for long-term rentals in Memphis before I started my own management company and then fired myself and outsourced the management again to another management company that I found was amazing because nobody wants to deal with tenants. It's literally the worst thing on the planet, you know, <laughs> to have to deal with tenants constantly in property management. You can make a lot more money focusing on asset acquisition and, you know, strategy than you can doing the nitty gritty of property management yourself. So a couple of questions I want to unpack from what you just said. So the first one is when you talked about financing some of the furniture, if uh -huh. there's a certain company, because I get this question all the time, is there anybody that will fund the furniture investment for a short-term rental? And then the second question would be around what are specific KPIs that you're measuring your property manager for your short-term rentals on that would basically apply to anybody that's looking to outsource their management or to just run a tighter ship for themselves? Mm-hmm. So, so the, the first question was financing. Um, I don't have a specific company for you right now. Um, I can reach out to a couple of friends of mine that do that. I usually finance them internally myself, so I haven't used them. Uh, they, can, they can have pretty decent rates. I think there's somewhere around 10% on some of these and they'll have like a five-year term, but you can, a lot of the furniture companies would finance directly as well. Some of them are no interest for seven-year type stuff, you know? Um, and so that can be really valuable when you're doing it versus even, and even renting the furniture in some cases, I'd rather just pay it off. But in seven years, you're probably gonna need replacement furniture on a bunch of stuff anyways, you know? So it's really only used, you know, until it's, it's useless, you know, couches and things like that get stains and little rips and stuff like that. Maybe you can refinish a desk or something. But um, so it's a matter of, you can go out and say, look, can, can the, um, you know, security company that puts in the cameras and all that, can they finance? And a lot of them can, you know, can the furniture companies finance and a lot of them can, you know, can the, the kitchenware and all the appliances and all that, you can get, you know, uh, credit cards that'll do that and finance it for you over a period of time on your purchase for zero interest for like a year where you can literally front load and pay all of you and try to pay it off as fast as you can out of the profits to then get to break even. And I would expect, you know, you should expect, you should expect to make zero money in year one, in my opinion, if you're trying to pay off these strategies, if not two years, if you're trying to pay it off and reduce your risk on financing everything, you know? So you could always go into it and say, look, I'm going to pay, you know, 10, 15, 20 grand in cash, depending on if you're financing a small unit or a full house or, you know, what it, what it costs. And, um, and I'm just going to pay it in cash. And I'm going to look at this as far as what is my return on investment? on that, you know, on that furniture, what's my profit making on my furniture first. Um, and, and I, I always try to amortize that profit over a period of time because you want that paid off over a period of time too. Um, you don't want to just 
be in it for nothing and then not make any profit, you know? So I try to strat, you know, say, okay, this thing cost me 20 grand. Let me go put it over a five-year term. If I can, you know, put a, you know, an interest rate on it, like 7% or something, or what's my payment got to be over that period of time to make sure I make 7% or 10% of my money or whatever that is on the furniture. And then I can finance the furniture with outside investors if I want to as well, and maybe cross collateralize with another piece of real estate I have or something like that to reduce the risk so that that way they're not asking for major returns because you can't really bring in investor money without finding ways to mitigate their risk on furniture because it's not easy to resell that furniture. Um, and then what was your second question with regard to um, uh, it wasn't the fight. Around like KPIs of how you how you help measure your management company's gotcha. progress. A, a lot of it comes down to understanding what real performance is and what makes a manager successful in the first place when it comes to managing a short-term rental, right? So what software are they using for pricing, right? What um, and, and how often do they check that information? So you want to write a list of questions for your property manager, right? And, and, and it's all go. And, and, and in addition, what marketing strategies do they implement? Can they, do they have any examples of their current listings and things like that? Or what are they going to make your listing look like? Do they understand how to, um, how to make sure that the rules are correctly in there. If they have problems that occur, do they go and update the rules? What are their policies and procedures for changes to these things as problems come up? What kind of communication software do they use? What kind of property management software do they use? How do they communicate with you when there's a problem? When do you need to step in on an issue? And how much work do you need to do? And what kind of reporting do they give you? So are they giving you management statements? And if so, um, can you show, get, get an example of that so that you understand it and know you as a manager or you as an owner want to review those statements on a monthly basis and say, well, what is getting reported to me? And, you know, what do those statements look like? How much detail do you have on a repair? Do you just say $500 fridge or stove? And then you're like, what the heck just happened? You know? property managers steal. You want to know this, this backup information and understand and say, well, do you give a receipt with that and a picture and, uh, and what occurred to make that happen? Did you put the detail and did you bill the guy that broke it first? Some of them forget to bill, you know, those other aspects. So it comes down to understanding what makes a good property manager. What happens on collections and insurance? You know, do they have a 30 year stay? Do they get a lease in place? Because it could turn into a long-term rental, especially in this environment when there's an eviction moratorium, you don't want someone coming in and staying for a month and paying you and then never leaving because then you've got to evict them like a potential normal tenant under tenant landlord laws and you're screwed. You know, you almost want to say, no, you can't stay here for longer. You got to move to another unit <laughs> to do that. You, there's a 27 day max or 30 day, 29 day max stay, you know, especially with that risk, you may want to look at that, you know, as a potential risk um, that's coming up. So, and, and how do the managers deal with that? Do they, you know, asking these key questions is key. And then you want to test them to say, are they communicating with you right? If there's a problem, did they email you, you know, after they did the repair or right away? And was that able to be automated where, you know, nowadays, if I have a repair, I don't care. I'm like, it is what it is. I don't like losing money, of course, but as long as I have my manager fixing it and I trust my manager to do it, I'm going to say no problem as long as you provide me what I need. And if you're not providing me what I need, what things do I need to do as a business owner to make sure you are? Which means if you don't give me the email communication, I'm going to be on your ass about it, but I'm also going to be super nice because you're on my team. Property managers do not have a fun business, fun, fun job, you know, when it comes to this. And so you got to respect that and be like, crap you got to deal with all kinds of crazy ass people with their money and all kinds of lies and things like that. So you want to make sure that um, you're respectful of under and understanding and have empathy for what the crap that they have to deal with. Cause if they have to go back and bill a tenant, you know, for this, a lot of times they may not build a tenant because they just don't want to deal with the headache of that particular tenant. That's a pain in the ass. And so you might want to give them feedback on what thing, Hey, you, 
you your kid flushed a marble down the toilet and it caused this and so we have to charge you for this it's the owner that um the owner's you know uh property and so i'm really sorry we're doing everything we can to reduce the cost for you but the owner is making us do that i'm like blame uh, i'm in california and i invest in the midwest and unfortunately for the taxes here but you know um I, I go through and I'm like, look, blame California, blame the California office every time you possibly can to take the onus off of you as the bad guy and put it on someone else so that you're on their team and you're trying to help them with their problem, right? So, and that's how they should position it. And a lot of times it can't do that. And I do that all the time, even with private investors and things like that. I got to ask my brother and, you know, my brother's you know, my business partner as well. And so I got to talk to him about it and see if he's going to be okay with that type of change. And, you know, and then I go back, oh, this is going to cause this problem and this problem, or, hey, I can't pay this interest rate because we got other investors over here that are waiting and, you know, doing those types of things. It helps a ton. It's a great sales technique with everybody you're dealing with to make sure that, you know, you get everybody on your side because that's the most important thing with business is, you know, how do you get what you need by killing everybody with kindness and giving everybody respect, um, no matter if they deserve it or not, you know, having empathy with their situation, even if they stole from you, you're having empathy with their situation because, calling them an asshole and being all in their face and yelling at someone that stole from you or yelling at someone who really screwed up isn't going to get you what you want. It's going to make things worse. And you want them to own up and have, if you respect them, even if they made a mistake, you want them owning up to that and fixing it for you and doing everything they can to fix it for future business with you because you were cool with them about it and you were able to solve that. Now, sometimes that bites you in the ass when you're too nice to people, you know? So, and you should be like, no, F you pay me, you know? So, <laughs> but no, for it, sure. that's gotten me a few times, you know, for yeah. sure. <laughs> but, but I think, I think it, what makes a difference in the sense of like creating a culture and creating a business also. Right. Cause right. I think we all know it's people that like, I mean, I've worked for people in the past and like, sometimes you, generally make a mistake right and being yeah. recognized especially as a team leader right like your your ability as somebody that leads is to recognize the mistakes are mistakes but as long as there is extreme ownership behind it mm -hmm. that's what's important you know what i mean like if you wait for a team member to be flawless you might get one every every so often right but if you can right. nurture and grow somebody um, and the other thing that you said that I love, because this is something that one of my mentors has taught me is, is to use other people as the decision makers. Mm -hmm. And this is the real power. If you, if you um, read the book, never split the difference. That's one of the things that he talks about there too, is like the people that you perceive have the most amount of power have the least. And the guy that is always telling you, I don't know, I need to check with my boss or I need to check with so-and-so or I need to call the person, right? They're usually the one that have the most amount of power. They're just kind of playing the game on a psychological level. And if you're dealing with investors, if you're dealing with people with Airbnbs and everything else, put in the little buffer between you as the host and this perceived owner mm -hmm. can save you a lot of hustle because you're like, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to, and then it seems like you're working with them and you're working like, I'm, I'm going to do my best. Yeah. And exactly. that makes such a difference. So that's such and, a and great think, advice. And, and, and realizing that, like you said, everybody on your team is going to make mistakes and, and there's no reason to get mad at them for making mistakes unless there's just blatant disregard and care, you know? Um, yeah. And, uh, and most of the time you got to look at yourself first and say, where did I fail as a leader where they are not prepared? Are they in the wrong seat where they just can't do this job? And it's my fault for not seeing that, you know, after taking that punch in the face, the first thing I do now is look at myself and say, what did I do wrong here that I can change to, to make this not happen again? I've had people loot cost me $15,000 and I'm going, could I have done any better? Would I, could I have made the same mistake? Absolutely. I'm the one that makes the most mistakes, you know? So, you, you know, I'm trying things all the time going, well, that cost me money, you know? So I, I still give my brother uh, crap for 15 years ago, uh, losing, costing us 10 grand because he missed the insurance on one of our mini flips. And, uh, and it cost us 10 grand from a minor fire that occurred. And he gives me crap because I go through and, and every time someone screws us, 
I always have the saying, well, it seemed like they know what they were talking about. And so my brother tells me that back to them, mm -hmm. to me as well, each time, like, I seemed like, seemed like they knew what they were talking about, dude. Is that why we lost this money? You know? So, I mean, it's the team members piece and the culture piece is super key because you want to make sure that everybody has that, that same mindset as culture. Everybody on my team knows that we're developing a cash flow stream where everybody's going for the same goal. And the people that work for me that bring me consistent deals, I get them reoccurring revenue for those referrals, for those people they bring in, you know, for whatever resources they develop for me so that they can get that reoccurring cash flow stream that way, as well as through developing real estate and things like that too. So that mindset and that culture is literally everything for success. Mm. I love that. Before we get into the to the last question that we asked all the guests, I wanted to get your take on, you've done a lot of different deals in a lot of different markets. Question that I get asked all the time is somebody that's brand new or maybe they're in multis and they're looking to get in short-term rentals and they're trying to identify a market. They're like, what what indicators, is it population growth, job growth, a lot of the multifamily ones, or what do you specifically look for when you're looking for a short-term rental property? I'm looking for, you know, as much travel as, as I can in that area. So there, it depends on the customer base that you're going for. So are, are there a lot of business people in that area? Is it someplace by Disneyland, for example, that I had where you get a lot of families coming into that area? So maybe you want a single family house that has three bedrooms or something like that in that area for the guy from Utah that doesn't want to go and spend, you know, they have, they have, you know, five kids and don't want to go spend three hotel rooms next to Disneyland, right? For $300 a night when they can go get ours for $350 a night for the entire house and a kitchen, you know, uh, who are the medical stay people in the area? Is there hospitals in the area and things like that that have a consistent, you know, but in Memphis, if we have a property next to St. Jude, um, it can do very well there because they have long-term cancer treatment uh, situations for kids that need that housing in those areas. You know, so it's a matter of saying, first, where can I go that has the right location? Do I have a specific market that I'm interested in that I think might be valuable? What are the tenant landlord laws in that area? Um, and what are, what, what, are, what are their stances on short-term rentals as well? You know, have they already created a stance? Have they addressed it at all yet? Because that could be a risk because, and, and you know, what kind of taxes are they going to implement? Are they trying to put in, you know, the hotel occupancy taxes and things like that involved? So, looking at those key things. And then uh, also looking at the economy, how affected are they from COVID? Every market right now, there's stats out there that will tell you which markets have a greater, uh, you know, susceptibility to uh, economic volatility because of COVID, because of the jobs in those areas. You know, um, if you're talking about downtown Seattle, downtown LA, San Francisco, New York, do you really want to try to buy something down there right now when you had, you know, Antifa running around breaking everything and you have a massive exodus out of that centralized location where rents and everything and multifamilies are probably going to drop in value. And that happened with a lot of the centralized locations. And I think the suburbs are going to have a major benefit from that over time because people are moving out. But, you know, I live in Orange County, California down the street for me. This is a decent area that I live in. Uh, it's not super high end or anything like that, but um, I live in a normal middle-class neighborhood. Um, I, I just, you know, I don't buy the expensive stuff living in LA. I'm looking at housing out of state, but you know, there's, there's tent cities, you know, six to eight blocks away from me that were never there before that were just gone. And the cities are kind of like letting some of these happen. And that's actually a different city that I'm in that that city is okay with it. But you want to be careful and say what things are happening around me. Do you under can you talk to realtors on the ground, all of that stuff? What is the job situation in that area? Um, what are the major employers? And what are their effects from COVID? You know, uh, those types of uh, aspects of things to really look at. Um, if you're buying a multifamily or a single family right now, be very careful about, uh, you know, what, uh, what those economic indicators are telling you, because they could have a major effect on the market. Um, and I would be very careful about interest rate risk too. Right now, they said for the next couple of years, they'll probably keep it low. But what happens if you go get a multifamily with a five-year balloon or a seven-year balloon? 
where are interest rates going to be in five to seven years? If the market crashes in the meantime and it's on its way back up, they may be trying to, you know, uh, counterbalance inflation and raise interest rates and things like that in that meantime. But really the inflation is happening because they're going through and printing, you know? So right now they're fighting deflation like crazy. It, it, you know, they're, they're, that's what's happening. So we'll see what happens in the long run, but you want to counterbalance some of these risks if you're going into an investment. Yeah. And I, what, what to me, it's so impressive about how your brain works is that, is that, uh, macroeconomic outlook that your real estate investing has, which I think it's very important because I think a lot of people, and especially because real estate investors used to be just guys, because like, let's be honest, at the beginning, real estate investors were either Wall Street guys or the handyman, like the handyman that used to do all the hard work and they did one house, two houses, three houses, and that's how they retired, right? Mm -hmm. But now we have so much information and so much access to data that you can play this game at such a high level like you do and, and learn how to mitigate risk with real estate through different tax incentives. Right. Learning how to analyze markets through the psychology of the economy behind it and understanding long-term what, what, what happens, right? Like if we print money and that's what people don't understand, somebody right, has to right. pay the consequences. And yeah. no money is like, there is no, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Even the Federal Reserve does not get a free lunch. They just get somebody else deals with it later down right, the road. Right. <laughs> but you as a real estate investor for your wealth, you owe it to yourself to understand what the roadblocks are and what the possibilities are. Because if not, you are left with really good intentions, but you don't understand the ground rules of what's happening around you. Okay. Yeah. And I think, I think the, um, you know, when it comes to getting knocked out last time, I'm always looking for that left hook. Where, where is it going to come from again? And, um, and so you start to pay attention once you realize that you took a hit from a change in the market because you were unaware that that was going to occur. You know, when mm -hmm. I first started, I was 26 years old and quit my CPA firm job. And like I said, I thought I was dope and I, totally was not i was like at the real estate clubs going you know i hope nobody talks to me because i don't know shit right now so <laughs> you know so but then you you learn after that hey pay attention to these things and you start developing relationships with other people that are interested in that too that bring you all kinds of like data and reports and check out this article and look at what this data is saying and and then it, you become much more interested in hanging out with the right people that think about those things and think about opportunities i can't even tell you how much money i've made just from hanging out with the right people it's unbelievable so yeah because they all have resources and intelligence and things they know about that you don't you know of course so. yeah the intelligence Absolutely. of the crowd i love yeah. that so before we bring into the last question. I just want to thank you and acknowledge you for coming on here, sharing all your knowledge and uh, wish you all the best success. Can't wait to continue following your journey as you go onward and upward and see you scale more of the uh, short-term rentals in your portfolio as well, which is really cool to see. And so before we get into it, where can folks learn more about OCG properties and more about you and what you're up to? Uh, OCGproperties.com or they can email me at invest at OCGproperties.com and we can go from there. So yeah. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So the last question we like to ask all of our guests is what is the number one secret for success in short-term rentals? It has to be the business owner aspect and understanding how to run a business in itself, which includes accounting, marketing, legal, risk mitigation and insurance, tax structures, understanding those aspects of things and the constant moving forward and solving problems consistently as they occur is how you're going to be successful. You could have, you could be, you know, in the beginning, I, I was more of a technician. You, I knew how to do accounting. You know, I knew how to do, do that aspect. You learn about all the other aspects of things as you're doing this. And your ability to be long-term successful is going to be dependent on all those other things, not the things you're proficient at now. And so learning marketing and learning what tax and legal structures you should be putting your, your stuff into and what insurance you should have in place on your, on your properties to mitigate risk. 
who your teams are and how you can set up processes to where you're not doing all the work yourself, because whether you think so or not, you may think you're the best at it, but you're not. You're the, the, the least efficient at it if you have other people doing the work for you. So build every aspect of your business with other people doing the work for you, because if you don't do that, you'll be self-employed and you, you're not quitting your job to not be free. And that's what happens. You, you're not free. I had to learn this and it took a long time. And I still find myself trying to go back into it you know, and solve a problem when I'm like, I shouldn't be answering that email, even though I have an awesome answer for that. I, I shouldn't be answering it. Let me go tell my other guy what to say if he needs help with that so that he can go answer it instead so that he's the communication person. Like things like that over time that you have to get out of your own way emotionally and mentally to be successful. I love that. That's so, so spot on. And one thing that somebody told me a while ago to that point is every time you're doing a process when you're first starting out, document that process as if it's the last time you're ever going to do it. And just you slowly build up a Rolodex of processes that eventually when you have the revenue to bring somebody on, you can start bringing on people, train them, and you elevate yourself out of the business, which is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And if you go to sweetprocesses.com, uh, you'll, you'll find a, uh, a software that will allow you to upload any process you want and it can spit out an instruction manual for you. Even if you do some updated changes, it'll PDF a new instruction manual and things like that for you. So pretty cool uh, tool to use for this. Thank you. I'm, I'm definitely going to check that out. Yeah. Process geek. So I love this stuff. Exactly. <laughs> I am awesome. working on becoming one, but yes. It's hard. It's not, it's not getting it. You got to get out of your own way. You know, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. For sure. Well, Matthew, Matthew thank you again for coming on, man. This, this has been a blast and uh, filled with gold and really, really truly appreciate you coming on here and sharing your knowledge with everybody. Anytime, man. Absolutely. Yeah. It was great. Thanks, man. All right, guys. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Hey, STR Nation, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. And in the comments, let us know what topics you want us to cover on upcoming episodes, and we'll make sure to get that in the books for you. And if you really want to learn how to launch, automate, and scale your short-term rental business, if you want to go deeper, then check out our free masterclass at strsecrets.com.